City, majestic bull, bearing vigor and great, awesome splendor. Kulaba, breast of the storm, where destiny is determined. Unug, great mountain, there the evening meal of the great abode of An was set. In those days of yore, when the destinies were determined, the great princes allowed Unug Kulaba's Ayana to lift its head high. Plenty and carp floods and the rain which brings forth the dappled barley were then increased in Unug Kulaba. Before the land of Dilmun yet existed, the Ayana of Unug Kulaba was well-founded, and the holy Gipar of Inanna in brick-built Kulaba shone forth like the silver in the load. listening to the drumbeat forever after it's a podcast about the bronze age in the middle east i'm your host alex and this is my guest kelton the other breast of the storm and we're listening to enmerkar and the lord of arata this is a sumerian text written in the 21st century bce and it begins by describing unug in the distant past the king enmerkar is the grandson of the sun god utu and he's gilgamesh's grandfather Ooh, right ah, okay that's fun the kings in these stories are going to be gilgamesh's grandpa and father oh okay cool yeah i'm sure they're well adjusted actually compared to gilgamesh in the yeah. beginning of the myth yes yeah his reign is described as a golden age. Big fan that every myth is like that. At one time, everything was better. It talks about the abode of An. It's mentioning the White Temple, built around 3000 BCE, on a pre-existing monumental temple complex. That's the Kulaba. And the Aana is Inanna's temple complex in Unug, the other major monumental complex. Inside, the Gipar, technically pronounced Gipar, is her bedroom, where Enmarkar literally sleeps with her. She also has a temple in Arata, which is called the Azagin, which is Sumerian for House of Lapis Lazuli. The Blue House period. We have a broken section of text. Basically, this refers to a golden age before the historical period that the authors would have been familiar with. Single note on a synthesizer, fog covering the land before time. Oh, yeah. Before the commerce was practiced, before gold, silver, copper, tin, blocks of lapis lazuli, and mountain stones were brought down together from their mountains. So essentially, large-scale resource trade with the mountains is the major dividing line in the Sumerian concept of history. In their ideology, Unug was independently great before it. We see that King Enmerkar is already building beautiful monuments to Inanna. The holy place was colorfully adorned with flawless lapis lazuli. Its interior beautifully formed like a white mesh tree bearing fruit. So it was before lapis lazuli was being traded, but he built temples to her with lapis yep. lazuli. Yep. He was just like born into existence with these piles of lapis lazuli. You didn't have to yeah. ask anybody else for the lapis lazuli. There was no exchanging of the lapis lazuli. No, exactly. Yeah, we haven't named that blue stone yet. We just kind of chiseled away the mountain around it to find this perfectly formed temple underneath the mountain. Wow, wild that wind erosion does that. Exactly. Our city's so great, we didn't even have to try. But also, now that we're telling the story, you peasants, you really have to try. <laughs> Should have thought that up before you were born after the Golden Age. That <laughs> sucks to be in. I don't know, I need an inferior metal. That's yeah, it's like, you know, the Golden Age and Silver Age. What age are we living in now? Man, so yeah, Gold and Silver, Bronze, and then the Age of Heroes, which is the generation of the Trojan War, and then the Age of Iron, which is suffering and toil, uh-huh. and short lifespans, and men are brutal. I would like to go back to the period before that. I feel that. Oh, I mean, it, they were brutal in the Age of Heroes, but in a cooler way. No, exactly. I mean, there were yeah. people actually dying, whereas, <laughs> you know. No, it's cool, we're just immortals fighting yeah. each other, so there's other, yeah. yeah. So, like, the Age of Iron is when people realize that when you kill a guy, he poops himself, you know, like, but the Age of <laughs> Heroes, like you yeah. know, he dies nobly, yeah, you know, exactly. dramatically, cinematically, but no, the age of iron, when you kill a guy, it's kind of sh- himself, <laughs> and then you gotta like struggle to pull your axe out of his skull, Not exactly, for like five minutes. That's the age of iron. Every five lines reminds you that the battlefield is constantly littered with the worst smells imaginable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, oh, it turns out war is bad. <laughs> Like, all the diseases they had, yeah, exactly. all, like, the weird molds growing on the dudes who haven't changed their socks for, like, five months. Right? Because you know. they're dead. Because they're dead. So the kingdom of Arata is somewhere north and or east of Mesopotamia, probably somewhere in Iran. It may or may not be based on a real place, but its leader also worships Inanna. This may be Ensu Keshtana or Ensu Girana, the named leader of Arata from the other text, but it's not clear here. The Lord of Arata placed on his head the golden crown for Inanna. But he did not please her like the lord of Kulaba. Arata did not build for holy Inanna. Unlike the shrine Ayana, the Gipar, the holy place, unlike brick-built Kulaba. Oh, they're not winning her over, though, with their temple. Yep, and Merkar no. is her favorite king. Ah, uh, well, I mean, they, they literally, they snooze next to each I other mean, yep. every night. Oh, yeah, in the, in the other myths, it's like, and although Inanna is not a duckling, I make her quack like one. You're sh- 
I know, that's that's a real line. There's a real line in a mythology about this king from a mythological age where everything was awesome before Trade has to brag to everyone that he is, in fact, good at sex. He's good at sex with the sex goddess. (laughs) They had to write that. I mean, huh. I like to imagine there are some very specific claims otherwise, you know, in the myth. Like, wouldn't it be funny if he was bad at sex? No, he was very good at sex. Shut up and listen to my story. You can tell he's good at sex because I'm making a point to refute all claims to the contrary. (laughs) What's the sexiest animal I can think of? Mm, A duckling. A duckling. Not even a duck. A baby duck. No, it's a very, it's a very vulnerable moment. Nobody wants to get quacked at right there. <laughs> so Enmerkar is Inanna's favorite king. At that time, the Lord chosen by Inanna in her heart, chosen by Inanna in her holy heart from the bright mountain. Enmerkar, the son of Utu, made a plea to his sister, the lady who grants desires, holy Inanna. So the word sister here is not literal. In this case, it means something more like female equal. Elsewhere, Inanna is Utu's sister, which would technically make her Enmerkar's great aunt. Not weird at all. Yeah, no, it's a you know it's a Game of Thrones situation. I mean, yeah, that's a lot of myths though. Yeah, that's also true. Persephone. Yeah. yeah. So Enmerkar prays to Inanna. Do you want to be a good king? The real thing is all kings are actually bad kings. I mean, There's yes. There's no such yes. thing as a good king. Well, yeah, that's why, that's why they had to invent mythology about good kings. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good point. We did literally have to specify he was good at sex. So dumb. Yep. My sister, Lerata fashioned gold and silver, skillfully on my behalf for a new. Let them cut the flawless lapis lazuli from the blocks. Let them build a holy mountain in Unug. Let Arata build a temple brought down from heaven. Your place of worship, the shrine, Ayana. Let Arata skillfully fashion the interior of the holy Gipar, your abode. May I, the radiant youth, may I be embraced there by you. Let Arata submit beneath the yoke for Unug on my behalf. The people of Arata bring down for me the mountain stones from their mountain. Cause the Abzu shrine to shine forth for me like the silver in the load. When in the Abzu I utter praise, when I bring the May, from Eridu, when, in lordship, I am adorned with a crown like a purified shrine. When I place on my head the holy crown in Unu Kulaba, may the people marvel admiringly, may Utu witness it in joy. He asks Inanna to make Arata build monuments to Inanna in Unug, to bring Arata's labor and resources and so on, to glorify Inanna and Enmerkar in Unug. Well, they were using their labor to build shittier monuments to her, so they might (laughs) as well, you know, have them come over, show them how it's done, you know, get some quack quacking. (laughs) I don't know, nothing quite like getting, like, your girlfriend's other boyfriend to, like, come help you write a love poem. When he mentions a May, he's talking about the same goods that Enki gave Inanna when he was drunk in episode 9. She also brings them from Eridu to Unug. What is a May? They're kind of like all of the goods of civilization. So it's like the art of farming and the art of writing and the art of proper speech and the art of... That's some real good stuff right in there. Yeah. I mean, proper speech is a bit tentious. Yeah. But proper and proper well, yeah, speech, but like, but you know, yeah. are writing it. Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> so we'll see what Inanna says, but first... So this episode is going to be about the late Uruk expansion in Iran. And we're also going to touch on Mesopotamian influence on Egypt. So, the late Uruk period, or between about 3400 and 3100 BCE, saw trade between the Alluvium and their outposts in the rest of Mesopotamia intensify. We see new centrally planned settlements in the periphery, most of which we'll look at in the next episode. And eventually, the network will collapse altogether. So, during the late Uruk, we see bureaucracies in both Susa and Unug use more and more complex systems of record-keeping. These record-keeping techniques overlap, but we see more of them in Unug than we do in Susa. These two sites also share an iconography of a quote-unquote priest-king, which has predecessors in art from the Susa I period in Susa. The population of Susa will decline during this period, as will the population of Susiana as a whole, but at the same time, Chokomish is built up as a centrally planned Uruk city, and we'll see similar techniques used elsewhere during the late Uruk period. So during the late Uruk period in Susiana, the local material tradition was replaced by standard Uruk craft goods. Even in small villages, the entire region was integrated into the same Uruk economy. This was a long-term process happening over several hundred years. It was probably not entirely because of migration. Villages also would have been exploited as sources of labor for larger cities whether that was Susa or Unug. Susa's population peaked in the mid-3000s during the Middle Uruk period. So during the late Uruk, or the late 3000s, the lower city at Susa was gradually abandoned. At the same time, they were building larger and more monumental buildings on the upper city. This is similar to what will happen at Unug when this colonial network collapses. More and bigger buildings in the administrative center to replace the administrative centers they used to have elsewhere. Similar to Ubay at Eridu, buildings at late Uruk Susa seem to have used a standardized cubit. This time this cubit was 65 centimeters, or about 2 feet, For example, one rectangular building was 12 by 9 units of 65 centimeters. 
Another was 18 by 15 units of 65 centimeters. These similar units of measure might speak to a standardized building practice. In the former building, we have evidence of basic production, like cups, bowls, grinding tools, and a spindle whorl, as well as evidence of administrative activity, like three numerical tablets, two tokens, one stamp seal, and one cylinder seal, as well as jewelry made of alabaster, calcite, and bitumen. In one L-shaped building with three rooms, we found a few sherds of pottery, plus a toothed sawfish mandible on the floor, as well as a bottle ceiling, a cylinder seal, and a numerical tablet. In the same building, we saw four alabaster and calcite mace heads fixed onto a handle with straps. The fact that the debris from manufacturing these mace heads was concentrated in one unit might indicate that these mace heads were only manufactured in one place. During one building renovation in the upper city, we see walls laid on top of what used to be indoor space that is not on top of an earlier foundation. So because of this, the walls sank in the softer soil, damaging the building. So in order to fix it, they cut the walls down almost to floor level and rebuilt them with a different brick size. This might mean that the rebuilding was done by a different labor team or that the standard brick size changed in between these levels of construction. Then a thick layer of mud plaster was laid over the floor to cover up the irregularities between the old and new floor. Seals during this period depict buildings with horns that is, three pairs of goat-like horns projecting from the upper story. Across ancient Near East, these are a symbol of divinity. For example, we remember the Susa One monumental platform had horns on it. And while lots of people know that the Vikings didn't actually wear horns on their helmets, those helmets were actually based on Bronze Age European helmets, which had imported this Near Eastern symbol of divinity. So, during the Middle and Late Uruk period, Susa was the central node in the trade between Mesopotamia and Iran. It filtered interactions in both directions. In Susa, we see the same administrative practices as at Unug during the same period of time like clay tokens, clay balls, and tablets, where we see some of the first writing in human history. In seal art, we see the same major male figure and the same teams of women working. We see the same types of temple offerings depicted, and all stages of the development of writing at Unug are also present at Susa. So as in art at Unug, we see a quote-unquote priest king, or a powerful male figure, who appears in Uruk period art. He's always depicted similarly. He has a beard, his long hair is pulled into a bun, he wears a hat and a kilt, but no shirt, and he's frequently shown brutalizing prisoners of war. So at Susa, we see him wielding a composite bow and shooting enemies with arrows. And at Chogamish, we have a complex scene of this leader holding a mace, sitting on a cow's back in a boat, and holding a rope attached to a smaller guy's butt. This might represent the deity. In Susa, it might represent the god in Shushanak, the patron god of Susa. But it's most often assumed to represent a human leader, either the king of Susa, the king of Anug, who ruled Susa, or the viceroy of Susa, who reported to the king of Anug. It might also be an abstract ideal type of leader, not any particular person or political office. So numerical tablets, in other words, tablets with numerical amounts written on them, recorded transactions of goods flowing in and out of the temple. The numbers on these tablets are small, ranging from 3 to 22, and seal impressions on these tablets show files of animals or scenes of people handling jars. So at Susa, we see fewer numerical systems than we see at Unug. Susa only used three of the total of 13 numerical systems used during the Uruk period, which probably speaks to a smaller scale bureaucracy and or more private trade that is outside the purview of the central institution. In general, the state apparatus appears to be smaller at Susa than it was at Unug. So one of these three numerical systems is the sexagesimal system, where the numerals are 1, 10, 60, 600, 3600, and 36,000. So the pattern here alternates between multiplying by 10 and by 6, so you know, 1 times 10 is 10, 10 times 6 is 60, 60 times 10 is 600, 600 times 6 is 3600, and so on. This system was used to count slaves, livestock, wool, fish and fish products, fishing equipment, and various containers and stone objects. And in later periods, it will be the primary numerical system of Mesopotamia, again, this base 60 system. The second of these systems used at Susa was the bisexagesimal system. So here, the numerals are 1 half, 1, 2, 10, 60, 120, 1200, and 7200. So for the most part, the pattern here is times 10, times 6, times 2, repeating. And outside that pattern, they also have numerals for 1 half and 2. This bisexagesimal system, or base 120 system, was used for grain, fish, and dairy rations. Another system used for grain to quote Daniel Potts in a 2004 article, was made up of, quote, small units multiplied by 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, or 10, alternating by a factor of 5, 6, 10, 3, and 10, end quote. This sounds confusing, but the point of a base 60 number system is to make division easier, because 60 is divisible by that exact same set of numbers, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 10. So this is just a way to do multiplication that corresponds to the more common base 60 number system. And if you're wondering about the factors of 5, 6, 10, 3, and 10, 5 and 3 are just half of 10 and 6, which are, of course, the factors in the sexagesimal system. So as a quick preview of the development of writing that we will get to in future episodes, during the early Neolithic, people exchanged clay tokens as stand-ins for objects. Later, they used clay balls with tokens inside to make the tokens harder to lose. Then they impress information on the outside of the clay ball about the tokens inside. So numerical tablets are essentially an elaboration of these inscribed clay balls. They're flatter, which makes them easier to store in the long term. 
and they're also easier to seal. Some numerical tablets have pictographic signs. For example, a sign representing an object and then a number of that thing. So you could see a sign for a sheep and then the number three indicating that three sheep are being recorded. So this is basically walking right up to the cusp of true written language. You have signs representing words and you have numbers standing in for transactions involving the objects described by those words. Susa and Dunuk have some signs and numerical systems in common, but Susa has a visually different writing style and the tablets are different dimensions. We don't have any lexical text from Susa. These are a list of words that show up in Unug, along with more types in numerical systems, which indicates that compared to Susa, scribes in Unug were not only recording more different types of things, but also using writing in a way that nobody else in the world was at the time. This may indicate that Susa might not have spoken the quote-unquote Uruk language, which was likely an early version of Sumerian. Either that, or the bureaucracy at Unug just had to keep more detailed records. As we mentioned last episode, the fact that the main deity in Shushanak of Susa has a Sumerian name may be evidence that at some point in its prehistory, Susa was a culturally Sumerian city. In a 2004 article, Daniel Potts, looking at these different tablets and fewer numerical systems at Susa, concludes that, quote, No Mesopotamian administration can have taken over power at Susa at this time. The introduction to Susa of just a few of the numerical systems found at Unug could have been affected by a scribe or two brought in by a local ruler whose site, a fraction of the size of Unug, and accounting requirements were very different from those in place at Unug, end quote. Moving on to Chogamish, which we met in episode 8. So Chogamish is at the northeastern edge of the Susiana Plain. During the late Uruk, it was 18 hectares, the other major center in Susiana. It had Uruk-style monumental buildings, similar to those at Telbrak, Hamukar, and Sheikh Hassan. We also see a stack of beveled rim bowls here, of course, the characteristic mass-produced bowl of the Uruk period. In a 1996 article, Abbas Alizadeh wrote that during the late Uruk period, Chogamish was, quote, a planned proto-literate town with streets, side alleys, sewer and irrigation drains, water wells and cesspools, workshops, and public and private buildings, end quote. In other words, Chogamish during the late Uruk was a city of a type familiar for much later periods, so an urban citizen of the Roman Empire would not feel too out of place here. At the Acropolis, that is the upper town on the high mound, we see a large administrative building with lots of cisterns and a complex drainage system, as well as pottery kilns, mosaic cones, clay tokens, and cylinder ceilings, all of which are characteristic of the late Uruk period. In the lower city, we see baked bricks for pavement, wells, cesspools, and drains as well as unbaked bricks for houses, often containing earlier sherds within the clay, which shows that the mud for these bricks was taken from garbage pits surrounding the settlement, sometimes including much, much, much older trash. We also see individual kilns and regular-sized houses, which might indicate that people were making some of their own pottery for household use. In terms of administrative technology, we see sealed clay balls and numerical tablets from the lower town, which, as with middle Uruk Susa, shows that the lower town was involved in late Uruk administrative activity. We see two well-preserved drainage pipes. One is three meters long, the other is almost six meters. The narrow end of one pipe would be inserted into the wide end of the adjoining pipe, which is a kind of modular way to create a drainage system for your entire city. These drains were made of pipes and laid into tracks made of baked bricks, and as I said, they're standardized to fit together, which is another advancement of the Uruk period. Speaking of water management, the buildings and drains cross each other at right angles, similarly to Navali Chori in episode 2. All in all, we see impressive infrastructure to supply fresh water and drain wastewater, which is indicative of a powerful organizing authority. So in 1974, Helene Cantor wrote that one room she excavated in, quote, provided the most delightful object of the season, a pottery vessel in the shape of a hedgehog. His nose is formed by a spout, projecting appliques recessed in front, render both the ears and eyes of the little creature. At the back, he has a tail and two stubby legs, end quote. This is similar to animal-shaped containers from Tutub, or Kafaja, in the Diala Valley. So we're going to take a quick look at a large village in Susiana, occupied during the late Uruk. Modern archaeologists have called this village KS-54. This village was up to 2.5 hectares, home to about 500 people. It was on the more arid southern edge of Susiana. Here, we see social differences in architecture. So a large domestic building with mud brick walls in the center of the village had stone vessels, decorative plaques, and gold and lapis beads, whereas more modest houses elsewhere didn't have treasure like that. Here we see similar food to Shafarabad, like barley, wheat, and lentils, like most settlements during the Uruk period, they mostly raised sheep and goat, but they also raised cows and pigs. So around the big houses at KS-54, we see more discarded bird and fish, as well as meteor cuts of mutton, goat, and beef. But the people buried there had lower bone density, which might indicate that even though they were eating richer foods and better cuts of meat, they had servants doing the actual work and therefore making their own body stronger, while the aristocrats lounged around all day and their bodies grew weak. Like Shafarabad, KS-54 was involved in the larger economy, most durable goods came from elsewhere, and we have little evidence of pottery production on site. It's also much farther from sources of chert than Shafarabad was, chert being a stone used for tools. But unlike Shafarabad, we see no evidence of administrative activity. For example, goods were rarely imported or exported from the site as such. Instead, what was made in the village seems to have been consumed in the village, with more elite families getting the better cuts of meat. So, to take a look at Godin Tepe, 
We are in the central Zagros of western Iran, far to the northeast of southern Mesopotamia and far north of Susiana. Godin is near the later Khorasan Road. This trade route was almost certainly used during prehistoric times as well. And the region was involved in the copper trade before the Uruk period. At nearby Sehgabi in the early 3000s BCE, we see evidence that an ingot mold was used to make standardized copper ingots, which would be a hallmark of the Bronze Age economy. During the Middle Uruk, Godin was a small trading enclave within a pre-existing town. This interaction predated Mesopotamian settlement. So the Uruk enclave here may have been established as a security outpost. So overland trade routes would be vulnerable to bandits. This outpost may have been run jointly by locals and Uruk migrants. Whoever the colonizing power was may have sent resources and labor to build this fort at the risk of alienating locals. There was a pre-existing town at Godin before Uruk contact. This is level six at the settlement. This occupation continued after the Uruk compound was established and the pottery in the lower town was still influenced by the pottery Neolithic era cultural network, including the Ubayid. So this lower town had 80% local pottery and very few beveled rim bowls. And it generally represented a continuation of the earlier local occupation. Whereas level five, the next level, had lots of Uruk stuff, which I'll talk about, including a new type of pottery. Every trait that makes this pottery different from earlier Godin pottery, it shares with Uruk pottery. So these are probably local versions of the kind of trans-regional Uruk styles of pottery. At Lake Uruk Godin, we see a walled compound built on top of a high point. This fort is built in a local style, not in the Uruk style. Here, the material culture is very Uruk. We see lots of beveled rim bowls, which is the only type of mass-produced bowl here. Here, only about half of the pottery is local, compared to 80% in the lower town. So this compound was probably an Uruk period outpost of some kind. And it comprised a complex of buildings and rooms around a large central court. The whole area was about 33 by 21 meters. And it was enclosed by an oval wall of sun-dried mud brick. So this wall, plus the steep hillside surrounding the upper town, would have made for effective fortification. North of the courtyard, we have a symmetrical monumental building. Its two doors are equidistant from the central hearth. It has two windows symmetrically spaced on the south wall, and it has similarly paired symmetrical elements like this throughout the building. One building had two rooms. On the floor of one room were lots of oxidized peas, barley, and wheat, indicating that this was used for food storage. The other room was a main hall, which was destroyed by fire, leaving charred roof beams on the floor and burned white lime plaster on the walls. Also inside this compound, we found 43 clay tablets, 27 of which were mostly complete. These tablets are similar in size and shape to tablets from Susa. Nine of them have impressions from a single Uruk cylinder seal. Of these 27 tablets, 25 have only numerical signs. One tablet is totally blank, and one of them has numbers and a pictographic sign. These use the same numerical system as later cuneiform and proto-elamite. It uses five numerals, which are wedge and dot-shaped. This blank tablet is proof that at least some tablets were made locally. None of them are baked, so they were probably not intended for long-term storage or transport. That is, when they were done with tablets, they would probably dissolve them in water and use them to make more stuff out of clay. The combination of numbers and pictographic signs will form the basis of writing. These may be a predecessor of the later Proto-Elamite script. We see similar tablets from Unug and Susiana at Susa and Chogamish, elsewhere in Iran at Siok and Tal-i-Gazir, as well as the site of Kafaja, or the ancient city of Tutub in the Diyala Valley, and the Habuba Kabira urban complex in Syria. This tablet is similar to the one from Tutub. It's the same size, it's unsealed with the same finger-molded sides, and Tutub is physically closer to Godentepe than it is to either Susa or Unug. But the tablets from level 5 at Godentepe are most similar to tablets from Susa. One similar tablet from Susa also has an arrow-shaped sign. Another group of eight has the same iconography as seals found at Godentepe, including running goats, ovals, and fish designs. So from Uruk Godentepe, we found a total of 13 tablets with seal impressions as well as four sealed jar stoppers and two cylinder seals. One of the seals found is blank, which is evidence that at least some seals were produced in Godin, instead of all being imported. All seals found in the original context were found inside this walled compound, which again probably served as an administrative center for the town. Some designs on these seals, shared by both Susa and Godin, include a squatting archer with his bow drawn, stylized plants, drill-centered circles, and running goats, also found at Tutub and later Unug, and heraldic lions, seeded lions, and animal files also found at Unug. So I already mentioned that the tablets at Godentepe are most similar to those from Susa. They use the same numerical system as Susa and later Proto-Elamite writing found across Iran. And their seal art has lots of designs in common with Susa. There are three possible explanations for this kind of cultural influence. They might have been made in Susa and brought to Godentepe. They might have been made in Godentepe by locals. And they might have been made in Godentepe by people from Susa. In a 1975 article by Harvey Weiss and T. Kyler Young, they hypothesized that these were made by Susans in Godin. So, you know, the blank seals and tablets indicate that at least some production was happening in Godentepe and not imported from elsewhere. It would have been a huge pain to transport lots of beveled rim bowls into the pottery when you could more easily make them from local clay and not have to transport them on a donkey's back or whatever. It's possible that Godin was copying Susan's pottery, but this is less likely the case for seals and tablets 
which were used for very specific tasks within a specific administrative system. Weiss and Young argued that it's unlikely that locals would copy Seuss's system so completely, especially at a much smaller site. So they suggest, quote, The Gordon 5 oval enclosure on the summit of the mound was a Seussian trading post immediately supported by a local agricultural village or town, end quote. So Gordon might have been a hub for long-distance trade, possibly colonized by Susa instead of by Unug, and part of a regional network of colonies centered on Susa specifically. Like I said, Godin is on the Khorasan Road, so it might have been Seuss's colony controlling flow in and out of the highlands. These Merkle tablets would record trade transactions, possibly goods on their way to somewhere else, either the alluvium or up into the mountains. This is probably the same trade route connecting Tepe Gaura to Lapis in Afghanistan, and around this period we see more and more Lapis appear at Gaura. So the site appears to have been abandoned after the Uruk occupation ended. There was some erosion between then and the next period, but not a whole lot of time passed, maybe a decade or two. Several Uruk walls were still standing when later occupation began. We have ash and trash from later hards thrown into a still-standing Uruk room, and there's good evidence that the Uruk complex on the top of the mound was hastily abandoned. There's no evidence for violent destruction. The roof of one room was burned, as I said, as well as a woven reed mat in a different room. But some walls were preserved with their lime plaster, so the entire complex didn't burn down. And some of the stuff they left behind included pottery, broken jar ceilings, tablets, and tablet fragments, but almost no metal and no precious metal or stones. Although it indicates that they probably took their valuables in a hurry and left everything else that would not be much use while they're running for their lives. But that after a short abandonment, again, maybe one or two decades, whoever lived there next seems to have used existing buildings and just built upon them. And that would be during the early Proto-Elamite period, which we'll talk about in the future. So Tepe Siok is in west-central Iran, near the modern city of Kashan. It was occupied before, during, and after the late Uruk period. Siok is on a trade route connecting Susiana to Afghanistan. So in other words, this would be the route connecting the alluvium to the Anorak mines in central Iran, which produced copper, silver, and lead. Siok was an early center for metalworking before Uruk contact. Like I said, by the late 4000s, they were importing copper from the Anorak mines, which were 100 kilometers to the east, and smelting and processing that copper on site, which is attested to by slag at Siok. We see beveled rim bowls here before the Uruk outpost is built, so we know they were already trading with the alluvium. These beveled rim bowls are part of an otherwise local assembly. So this Uruk outpost is established after this trade had gone on for a while. This is a single administrative center, not a wholesale settlement, so it's more similar to what was going on at Hajanebi and Godentepe. This is probably established to control trade routes, especially copper, so we do see a destruction layer here, separating the latest known pre-contact remains from the earliest Uruk remains. This isn't necessarily proof that those eras are mutually exclusive. In other words, there might be some pre-contact stuff that we haven't found that dates from after this destruction layer, but it is extremely suggestive, like at Talbrak, like at Hamukar, that this destruction layer coincides with the beginning of intensive Uruk contact. But afterwards, we do see the local material culture continue alongside this new Urukware. So I mentioned that Siok was a stop on the trade route connecting the Anorak mines to the alluvium. So the Anorak mines mostly produce copper, but we also see silver pendants, beads, and bracelets in Siok tombs, as well as some objects made of lead, which is a silver byproduct. There are gold deposits nearby. It's unclear if they were being exploited at the time, but we do see a handful of gold beads at Tepe Siok. Like Godin, several academics have claimed that Siok might have been a colony of Uruk Susa rather than any city in the alluvium. Like at Godin Tepe, tablets, material culture, and architecture all show more similarities to Susa than they do to the alluvium. They have numerical tablets, which are convex and cushion-shaped. They date to the very end of the late Uruk sequence at Susa, and they correspond entirely with examples from Susa. Notably, these numerical tablets at Siok have isolated pictographic signs, which is a very specific phase in the development of writing. So these probably date from the very end of the late Uruk, possibly later than any examples we have from Susa itself. These also might be an early form of proto-Elamite, which we will see replace Uruk-style administrative record-keeping in Iran after the collapse of the Uruk network. So during the late Uruk period in Susiana, Overall sediment becomes less dense over time. This is possibly related to a region-wide aridification event. So in other words, people might have been giving up intensive farming and herding in the hills instead. So during this period, people abandoned the center of the Susiana Plain and moved closer to two major centers, those being Susa and Togamish, leaving a 15-kilometer-wide belt of land abandoned between the two cities. If we interpret this as a no-man's land, this might be the first evidence of war between Susa and Togamish. During the late Uruk, the population was declining again, Susa shrinking again. Togamish is either abandoned or mostly abandoned again. And the total amount of land occupied during the post-Uruk period will be three times less than it was during the late Uruk and six times less than it was during the peak of Uruk settlement in the middle Uruk period. The end of the Uruk period in Susiana will be as abrupt as the beginning was. Now we see a new and different culture, the Susa III or Proto-Elamite culture. We'll talk about them later. They are perhaps more famous for the Proto-Elamite script, which is a different form of writing that developed out of archaic cuneiform and is kind of a sister system to it. This was used between about 3300 and 3000 BCE across Iran, 
after the collapse of the Uruk system. So here is what we know. Susiana's population exploded in the middle Uruk period. Around the same time, Uruk material culture started to appear. Over the next few centuries, even small villages in Susiana used more and more Uruk ware until the material culture of the entire region was more or less indistinguishable from Unug's. They also used a similar but different and less expensive administrative system to that of Unug. So like I said, Guillermo Algaze considered Susa to be an Uruk colony. We have no definite proof of this, and in fact we have lots of evidence of two-way cultural exchange. It's also worth noting that at Godin and Tepe Siok, we see tablets more similar to those of Susa than those of Unug, with the same artistic motifs, the same seal designs, and so on. So Susa may have had its own colonial network. In this conception, while Unug and other Uruk cities were colonizing Syria and Anatolia, at the same time Susa was colonizing the Iranian highlands for the same reasons going on in the West, you know, to grow food at home and import exotic goods from the mountains. Certainly the administrative system at Godentepe would attest to this. So it's worth looking at the concept of a colony. In a 2001 article, Gilstein defined a colony as, quote, an implanted settlement established by one society in the territory of another society, end quote. This settlement is intended as a long-term residence and should be both spatially and socially distinct from the host society. In other words, people migrating and integrating into the host society doesn't count as colonization, which is migration. So the colony starts out with a distinct collective identity tied in some way to its homeland, but the homeland doesn't always have to formally control the colony in a political sense. Colonization is fairly common in history. It's often associated with emerging state societies. So beside the Uruk period, we see colonization in archaic Greece, the Roman Empire, and in the Americas at Teotihuacan, Oaxaca, Tiwanaku, and the Inca Empire. They can be established for a variety of reasons. Trade is the most common one. We can look at Phoenician trading colonies, some Greek colonies, and Venice and Genoa in the late medieval period. They can be established as military outposts connected to direct conquest. So we can look at Rome or forts built on the western frontier of 19th century America. They can be created as safety valves to diffuse social tension in the homeland. So for example, we can look at some Greek colonies and Australia. And some colonies are established as capital investments in agricultural production, like the Jamestown colony in Virginia, as well as most of the Americas. It's most commonly suggested, though, that Uruk outposts were trading colonies. We have some evidence of large-scale production for export, but it's generally agreed that they are too small and too far away from the Uruk homeland to work as military outposts. But colonization is not the only type of cultural interaction, so it can't be the only explanation for this type of cultural exchange. One other idea is cultural emulation. This is when elites in one society imitate some aspects of a different society. Often, that latter society is bigger, richer, or more impressive somehow. This allows those elites emulating that bigger society to impress the right people, either in their own society or among their neighbors. This emulation happens for the same reason as high-value gift exchange, but this doesn't always have to include the exchange of objects. Instead, it can focus on the exchange of intangible ideas, symbols, and artistic motifs. Also, this emulation doesn't necessarily imply that one society has any kind of power over another. There are different types of power, besides the formal political or military control, including economic, social, religious, and ideological power. And generally, in cases of emulation, we see selective incorporation of foreign styles. People are more likely to incorporate aspects of public identity from another culture, like architecture, clothing, and food serving dishes. They're less likely to emulate other cultures and aspects of their daily domestic life, like those relating to subsistence, childcare, and food preparation. For example, during the Ubaid period at Gaura, we saw them adopting aspects of public identity but not private identity. By contrast, migrants are more likely to use their homeland's entire material culture, especially if they migrate in large groups at the same time. So to look at some other ideas, in 2004, Daniel Potts characterized the Middle Uruk period in Susiana as, quote, an infiltration of southern Mesopotamians, probably agriculturalists and their families, potters and other craftsmen, who moved into the available agricultural land in Susiana and founded new settlements, end quote. But like I said, we see fewer administrative systems in Susa and a different organization, which might suggest that it wasn't formally controlled by Unug or some other Mesopotamian city. It was part of the same world and it had lots of culture in common, but it wasn't part of the same polity. In 2005, Guillermo Algazi wrote about Funan, which was the first historically attested state in southeastern Asia. It was strategically located on the Straits of Malacca, near modern Singapore. And barely a century after the first South Asian traders arrived by sea, an institution of hereditary kingship had become well-established in Funan, as well as lots of infrastructure, Brahmin clerks, Buddhist monks, and the writing of Sanskrit, as well as artifacts from India, Rome, China, and Persia. A legend in Funan traced the origin of the kingship to an Indian figure who married into the local chiefly line, which probably indicates that the concept of kingship was of Indian origin. In other words, minimal contact with a larger, more complex, or developed society can be enough to tip the balance towards a more institutional, large-scale state society. There's no need for large-scale war or invasion, migration or trade colonies, and so on. And a related idea is the concept of a trade diaspora. These are migrant communities set up to mediate trade relationships. 
That is, they're not necessarily organized by any larger institution. Instead, family or economic relationships between individuals and small groups are enough to transfer goods and culture from one area to another. And this would explain the small complex within small towns like Hajinebi and Godin. So in other words, Unug doesn't have to send an army to sack the city of Godin and impose Uruk culture at the point of a sword. You know, instead, it's possible for both communities to benefit from large-scale trade conducted by a small number of people with family connections to the Uruk world. So that's that on late Uruk Iran. Now let's take a look at Uruk influence on Egypt. So obviously this podcast is about Mesopotamia, not Egypt. Dominic Perry already has the History of Egypt podcast, which is great. And there's no need for me to reinvent the wheel. In fact, I went back and listened to that first episode just to see what he said about the period we're covering today. And he basically said, I could spend dozens of episodes covering every aspect of prehistoric Egypt, but that would be a terrible way to start a podcast, so I won't. So, uh, anyway, while the late Uruk period is going on in Mesopotamia, some aspects of Mesopotamian Uruk culture appear in Egypt. We'll talk about some stamp seal designs and the introduction of cylinder seals. They traded in lapis lazuli, had to have come from Afghanistan or possibly Pakistan. We see buttress recess architecture, or niched architecture, in Egypt, which may have come from Mesopotamia. And notably, we have no evidence of Egyptian influence on Mesopotamia. So contact with the Uruk world didn't cause these developments in Egypt. Instead, we'll see an Uruk-style expansion of Egyptian culture around the same time, which brought it closer geographically to Mesopotamia and made it more receptive to cultural interaction and importing certain markers of elite identity. This new elite in Egypt needed new ways to distinguish itself, and it wanted new access to exotic goods from far away. So we're going to start with a quick history of Egypt up to the 3000s, and then we'll talk about Uruk influence specifically. So starting with the last glacial maximum around 20,000 BCE and lasting for the next 11,000 years, the climate of northeastern Africa was about as dry as it is today. Most settlements in Egypt were clustered in the Nile Valley, just north of the second cataract on the modern border with Sudan. Starting around 12,000 BCE was a period called the Wild Nile Period. This is when the Nile underwent huge fluctuations. This is associated with the burial sites at Jebel Sahaba, which is currently somewhere near the beginning of episode 10. Here we see the first evidence of prolonged warfare. Also, they invented pottery, apparently independently of Southwest Asia, 2,000 years earlier. So in the late 9,000s BCE, in the region of Egypt, we see wavy line pottery begin to spread across what is now the Sahara. The African humid period began abruptly around 8,500, and it'll last until about 5,300 BCE. This is when tropical monsoon belts moved north, as far as 800 kilometers north of their present level. So as a result, the entire Sahara became much wetter fairly quickly. It generally had a savanna climate, there were many lakes and bodies of water, enough wild grain grew to support people and wild herds, so foragers from the south migrated northwards into what is now the western desert of the country of Egypt. Here we see new settlements away from the Nile. In this region, it rained between 50 and 150 millimeters a year, so not enough for dry agriculture per se, but definitely enough to live in a grassland and be able to hunt and forage and fish and so on. We barely see any settlements in the Nile Valley or the Delta, so it might have been too marshy, the vegetation might have been too dense, or it might have just been too full of crocodiles and hippopotami and so on. Which, if you don't already know, look up the stats on how many people every year are killed by hippopotami. It's a lot. Including the historical King Scorpion. Again, check out Dominic Perry's podcast. So between about 7,000 to 5,300 BCE, or the same time as the Pottery Neolithic in northern Mesopotamia, we see the first domestic livestock. So sheep and goats were probably introduced from the Near East. Goats, of course, having been domesticated at Ganj Dure. And cattle were either introduced from the Near East or domesticated locally. There was some debate about that. Either way, the grasslands and the numerous bodies of water were perfect for mobile herds. So essentially people could move their herds from waterhole to waterhole and graze them along the way, and they didn't have to invent state society yet. So after the 8.2 Killier event ended around 6,000 BCE, the Nile started to flood on a regular basis, which basically, without human intervention, created a single crop of wild annual grasses on the alluvial soil, essentially the Nile floodplains. If people tried cultivating or domesticating this grass, it didn't stick because of what we'll see in a second. But even after the 8.2 Killier event ends in the Near East, Egypt sees a trend of increasing aridity. Throughout the 5000s and 4000s BCE, the desert playas, or seasonal lakes, dried up. Tropical rainfall belts moved back south, moving back to about 400 kilometers north of current levels, and annual rainfall decreased from 250 to less than 50 millimeters. So it's not quite as dry as it is today, but it is much drier than it had been during this African human period. So by about 5300 BC, the entire modern territory of the country of Egypt received under 50 millimeters per year of rain. Again, people that had been living in the grasslands began to cluster again in the Nile. Most of the permanent sites in the western desert became seasonal, and some foragers moved back south to modern Sudan, where it still rained more. So here we see kind of a mirror image of the Near Eastern Neolithic. So in the Near East, nomadic foragers gradually became sedentary farmers and herders, creating pottery. But in Egypt, sedentary foragers, creating pottery, gradually became nomadic cattle herders. Even as it's starting to rain less, farther south there are still some wild grains, fruits, and tubers in the savannah. 
domestic cereals do not appear to be as important for Northeast Africa, at least outside of the Nile Valley. In fact, this drier climate might have been better for grass. So in a summer monsoon climate, there is a lot of intense rain that falls during the day, whereas in a more Mediterranean climate, the rain is gentler and it falls at night, which is more sunlight for plants and less disruptive, just from the force of water falling on the ground, which might have led to more grass for mobile herds to graze on. So during the 5000s BC, we see a homogenization of different cultures, now that they're all kind of stuck in one place along the Nile Valley. We see farmers, some of whom may have been from the Near East. We see herders fleeing the drying savanna, and we see fishing people living along the Nile. The first fully agricultural societies appear around 5000 BCE in the Fayum Basin in the north on the west bank of the Nile. Essentially, this is the same time as the second half of the Ubaid period in Mesopotamia. Agriculture might have been introduced from Palestine or maybe from Arabia. They have imported Neolithic crops like barley and emmer, as well as, of course, sheep, goats, cattle, and pigs, but they're still hunting and fishing. They have familiar technology, you know, pottery, grinding stones, hearts, and stone tools. This is also around the period of time when pottery glaze is invented in Egypt. By the late 4000s, or the end of the Ubaid period in Mesopotamia, the climate in Upper Egypt or Southern Egypt is extremely dry. So let's look at the Nakata period. This is essentially Egypt's version of the Uruk period, when the culture from Southern or Upper Egypt spreads across the Nile Valley. It is essentially another proto-historic period, where many characteristic aspects of the later Pharaonic culture will spread across Egypt. The Nakata I period stretched from about 4500 to 3600 BCE, so this covers the Susa I period, the post-Ubaid period in the north, and the heyday of Telbrak. During this period, in Egypt, houses are made of wood, reed, and mud, and their painted pottery depicts war and hunting. So in Mesopotamia, the Uruk expansion was a period of time when the culture of the southern wetlands spread across the highlands in the north and the east. This is kind of the middle of the process of state formation. Likewise, in Egypt, during the Nakata II period, so about 3600 to 3300 BCE or so, this is when the Nakata culture of the southern highlands spread into the northern wetlands and the Fayum to the northwest. We also see Egyptian goods on the coast of Palestine and spreading southwards into Nubia, or what is now Sudan. This was probably helped along by the domestication of the donkey, which revolutionized overland travel. In other words, as Uruk culture is expanding to the northwest into northern Syria, Egyptian culture is expanding to the northeast into Palestine, which is right next to Syria. Also during the mid-3000s, the climate is getting drier and drier. More people are forced out of the Sahara into the Nile Valley. So this is probably related to the expansion in that increasing population density causes people to find new areas to support new amounts of people. And it also forces new people into contact with each other that hadn't been in cultural contact beforehand. During this period, copper tools will replace stone tools. We'll see more silver and gold use. Maces are pear-shaped now, like they are in the Near East, not disc-shaped as they had been in earlier Egypt. This is a symbol of leadership, as we've been talking about. So in episode five, I mentioned a jungle cat with healed leg bones which was evidence that it was being cared for while its bones healed. In that same cemetery, so at Hierakonpolis, around 3700 BCE, we see domestic animals buried, like cattle, sheep, goats, dogs, and donkeys, and wild animals, like baboons, hippopotamus, elephant, leopard, ostrich, and crocodile. These animals have their own graves, either buried alone or with other animals from the same species, and some animals buried with humans include dogs, baboons, and goats. In the same cemetery, we see a small pit with six cats buried simultaneously. This is a male and female adult, plus four kittens from two different litters. These are African wildcats, the ancestor of the domestic cat, not jungle cats, as that one from episode five. It's not clear if these were domestic cats, in light of all of the wild animals also buried here. But either way, it shows that the close symbolic relationships between humans and cats is very old, especially in Egypt. And then the Nakata III period, from about 3300 to 3100 BCE, or the same time as the late Uruk period, is when we see a monumental building at the south town of Nakata. So this is a mud brick building enclosed by walls, it is 30 by 50 meters, and this may have been a royal palace. In a 2010 article, Michael Brookfield writes that during the Nakata III period, Egypt sees, quote, the first hieroglyphics, the first graphical narratives on palettes, the first regular use of serex, the first truly royal cemeteries, and possibly the first irrigation, end quote. So in other words, this is when we see a huge amount of what will define later Egypt, and not for nothing, this is the same time that writing was invented in Mesopotamia. So to look at Uruk influence specifically, Cylinder seals will become a major part of Egyptian iconography. Mesopotamia will export certain architectural styles, and I already mentioned trade and luxury goods like lapis lazuli and obsidian. They'll also export a fair number of artistic motifs, most of which were originally from Middle Uruk Susiana. These became part of the general Uruk visual language from the close contact between Susa and the Illuvian in the Middle Uruk. And then from there, they'll spread across Mesopotamia. There is some debate about how Mesopotamian culture reached Egypt. The most likely option is that we know that the Illuvian established Uruk colonies up the Euphrates, we talked about Habuba Kabira slash Tel Kanas. There were some other ones on the upper Euphrates. It's not a terribly long distance from there to the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean. And from there, you could just take a boat down the coast to Egypt. They also might have traveled overland across the Arabian Desert or maybe by sea from the Persian Gulf to the Indian Ocean to the Red Sea. 
So in episodes four and five, we talked about the fact that you can't be a mobile cattle herder in the middle of the Sahara Desert. Cattle need too much water per day, and they can't travel too far in extreme heat. So when the climate dried out, many cattle herders moved south following the savannah. But with the domestication of the donkey, overland travel became viable on a large scale. Donkeys are better suited to the desert, and they can carry a fair amount of weight. So the site of Ma'adi in northeastern Egypt was apparently a trade hub connected to the Near East. They imported metal and metallurgical traditions, as well as the new style of mesed, as well as maybe raw materials like lapis. Also, as I mentioned, during this period of time, a lot of Egyptian stuff shows up in Palestine, which was incorporated into this new network of Nakata culture. So it's likely that this Mesopotamian Egyptian contact is also happening in Syro-Palestine. Also, we don't know much about the Arabian Peninsula, so it's not unlikely that Mesopotamia and Egypt were connected by Arabian mobile herders in what is now the Arabian Desert. Like in Arabia, northeastern Africa started herding long before it started farming. As I mentioned, the most likely vector of contact was Uruk outposts on the upper Euphrates to the Mediterranean coast. Later in history, we will see sites on the Syro-Palestinian coast connecting Egypt and Syria, like Byblos and Ugarit. There is also an old theory that Mesopotamian people arrived by boat the long way around the Arabian Peninsula and arriving via the Red Sea. We'll talk about the Jebel al-Arak knife, which has a carved handle depicting a battle with people arriving by boat. This has been hypothesized to represent Mesopotamians, but these invaders are apparently wearing Egyptian clothes, and their boats are different from known Mesopotamian boats. But that doesn't rule sea travel out entirely. Even if the sailors weren't Mesopotamian per se, the Persian Gulf was already in contact with the Harappan culture in India and Pakistan. So maybe Egypt got their lapis by sea instead of by land. Egypt was already involved with the Red Sea at the time. They were importing obsidian, either from Yemen or from the Horn of Africa. But also, we see obsidian that originated in Anatolia, which they might have gotten from the Syrian coast. So there is no native lapis lazuli in Egypt. Local geology is incapable of producing it. So it would have had to be imported, probably from Afghanistan, maybe from Pakistan. So either way, they're getting it from 4,000 kilometers or 2,500 miles away, as the crow flies. Out of 15,000 known pre-dynastic graves in Egypt, about 167 have lapis, or a little over 1%. Because of tomb robbing, the original number might have been higher. Lapis first appears in the early Nakata period, but it's common in Egypt from the Nakata 2C period onwards. In other words, this is the same time that the Nakata expansion is going on. Unlike later periods, lapis doesn't only show up in the fanciest elite tombs, it's found in a large cross-section of tombs, including small graves with only a few grave goods. At the cemetery of El Gerzeh in Lower Egypt, this is also from the Nakata 2C period, out of about 300 graves, 16 have lapis, or about 5%. This is the highest percentage found at any cemetery from this period. We do see some Uruk pottery types in Egypt, like bent spouted vessels and pots with four triangular lug handles. These designs are combined with the traditional wavy line style. These four lugged pots are decorated with boats and mourning scenes, as in grieving, not as in sunrise. Both of these motifs are present in Egyptian art before Mesopotamian contact, so we see they're importing forms of pottery, but putting familiar content on them. So in Mesopotamia, the archaic cuneiform sign for ration allocation is often associated with the sign for beer. Egypt and Mesopotamia have similar baking and brewing pots, and the signs representing them in cuneiform and hieroglyphics are similar to each other, which may be evidence that Egypt imported an Uruk-style ration system. Also in Egypt, we see stone imitations of Mesopotamian pots. There's obviously lots more stone in Egypt than there is in the Alluvium. Of course, we've talked a lot about seals in this podcast. Egypt seems to have imported the Mesopotamian system of sealing, so they impressed their seals on jar stoppers and clay balls. This is unlike what they were doing in Palestine, where they would impress the clay of the pot itself. So we see they're importing it from farther to the north and or to the east than Palestine. So we have two stamp seals in Egypt. One is in Upper Egypt, an otherwise nondescript tomb, and the other one is at a site near Gerse in Lower Egypt. The second one is probably of Syrian origin. It's carved from red jasper, but stamp sealing never really took off. By contrast, cylinder seals will become a core part of Egyptian elite identity. Cylinder seals were first found at Tel Brak in the early 3000s BCE, and they spread throughout Mesopotamia during the Uruk expansion. So the type of cylinder seal imported to Egypt was a uniquely Mesopotamian type. We have about 20 cylinder seals known from Egypt. Some might be local imitations, and some might be imported from Mesopotamia. One grave at the side of Nakata has some lapis beads. Unlike most graves here, these are several people buried in one grave, not just one. It's also spatially separated from the rest of the cemetery, but in this grave we have a cylinder seal, and the design on it is three ovals enclosed in irregular borders. This is similar to seals from Susa and Girsu, near Lagash. So the combination of lapis lazuli, the cylinder seal, the fact that they're buried differently from other Egyptians, and the fact that they're buried apart from other Egyptians might indicate that these people are somehow connected to Mesopotamia. And from the main part of that same cemetery, we see another cylinder seal. This one is carved from brown limestone. It depicts curved lines and fish swimming in water, so its design is similar to seals from Ur, Telbrak, and Tepe Gaura. So to look at artistic motifs, so the earliest Near Eastern parallels we see in Egyptian art are with art from Susa, not from the Alluvium. Susa had a wider range of motifs, including hybrid creatures and the flower and serpent motif. It also might have been the main stop on the route from the mountains westward. 
The transfer of Susiana's culture to Egypt was probably mediated by Syrians and other people in between. So I mentioned earlier that Uruk Mesopotamia may have exported the buttressed recess or niched wall facades, which were common on Mesopotamian monumental or public buildings since the Ubaid period. You see them at Eridu, Unug, Tepegara, etc. These start to appear in Egypt around the late Dynasty Zero and the beginning of the First Dynasty, so around the same time as the collapse of the Uruk colonial network, maybe a little bit afterwards. These architectural designs are depicted in art, for example, on a serek, or a heraldic device with the horse name of a king, one of the names of a king, as well as on ivory boxes and inlays and royal tombstones. It also shows up in architecture, in palace and temple structures, and on elite mortuary monuments, in other words, big fancy tombs, during the First and Second Dynasties and niche to brick motifs are used continuously into the Old Kingdom. So if that was imported from Mesopotamia, it became an important visual element of Egyptian culture. Stone palettes are an Egyptian invention used to grind and apply cosmetics. They first appeared during the Nakata I period, but by the Nakata II and III periods, they reflect Uruk influence. For example, the scorpion mesed has a rosette, which is in Mesopotamia, often associated with the goddess Inanna. We also see intertwined beasts on the Narmer palette, intertwined beasts being one of these symbols from Mesopotamia. As it happens, the Narmer palette was the very first thing I learned about in college. So some local smithing scenes appear on palettes and maceheads. In a 2000 article, Alexander Joff writes that this, combined with copper imitations of flint knives, are evidence for, quote, expanding court control over the visual environment and craft production, end quote. We also see the Master of the Beasts motif in Egypt. So one tune in Hierakonpolis from the Nakata IIc period has an underground chamber on which is painted in white plaster, people, animals, and boats. Most notably in this tomb, we see the Master of the Beasts motif with a man holding off two lions. This motif is best known from Susa stamp seals, and it spread to Unug and became one of the most famous parts of Uruk iconography. In 2013, Alice Stevenson wrote that this tomb art, quote, represents the earliest borrowed design in Egyptian art, end quote. We also see a Master of the Beast motif with lions on the Jebel al-Arak knife handle. Obviously, this is notable because it focuses on a single figure with superhuman strength. In Mesopotamia, this motif is inextricably linked with the imagery of a sole male leader, and it's fair to say that Egypt invents divine kingship before Mesopotamia does. Naram-Sin is commonly said as the first Mesopotamian king to declare himself a god. That's in the 2200s BCE. Another motif is animals on snakes. So at Unuk, we see animals standing directly on top of two entwined snakes, with the snakes pointing at opposite directions. At Uruk-Susa, we see rows of birds above and below snakes, and the snakes are pointing in the same direction. We also see a quadruped stepping on a single snake, and we have three examples of this motif from Egypt, and at least one, the animal is an elephant. Artistically, these are more similar to Mesopotamia than they are to Susa, but the snakes go in the same direction like they do at Susa. And we also have one of an animal stepping on one snake, like at Susa. Likewise, the griffin, or a part lion, part eagle creature, first shows up at Middle Uruk Susa, later at Siok and Proto-Elamite Susa, so also in Iran. We only have two examples from Unug. Egyptian griffins are most similar to those from Uruk Susa, same situation with griffins from Syro-Palestine. In one indigenous seal from Syro-Palestine, we see a griffin suckling its young. The mother suckling its young is another motif imported from Mesopotamia, but it's not found in Egypt until the Old Kingdom. The lion attacking quadruped is another one of these motifs. It shows up at Susa and Unuk during the Uruk period, as well as on the two-dog palette in Egypt, which shows a traditional hunting scene. We also see several ivory knife handles, including the Jebel al-Arak one. These are more similar to the animal files motif on Uruk seals than they are to traditional hunting scenes. A couple more motifs. We see a rosette entwined by serpents. The snakes look kind of like strands of DNA, with the rosette in the loops between them. These images from Egypt are basically identical to those from Uruk Susa, so we'll look at one last motif. We also see animals with two heads, which first show up in cylinder seals from Susa, later travel to Uruk Gaura, and later Jebel Aruda in the Habuwa Kabira area. These also travel to Egypt, presumably from the Syrian coast. So obviously we see lots of Iranian influence. Snakes were important in Susianan iconography. We remember the snake handling rituals from the Susa I period, which might have been what they used that temple platform for. Snakes and intertwined snakes are common in all these designs. And like I said in episode 16, we see a snake handler in the later temple at Lagash. So it's worth asking what is with all this Iranian influence? You know, if you look at a map, there's lots of stuff between Egypt and Iran. Notably, there's southern Mesopotamia, then the Arabian Desert, then Palestine, then the Sinai Desert. Why is there seemingly more Iranian influence than Mesopotamian influence? One possible answer is that Egypt wasn't interacting with the alluvium, it was interacting with northern Syria, and of course there were Uruk outposts built here, but of course North Syria had its own links with Iran going back to the early Neolithic. So I've been mentioning the Jebel el-Arak knife. This is a knife with a flint blade and a carved ivory handle from the early Nakata III period. It was originally held together with a small strip of gold foil. This is definitely an Egyptian object. It's similar to other Egyptian ivory knife handles. They are carved from elephant tusk, but this one is notable for the Mesopotamian-style carvings on the handle. We have several of these motifs I talked about, including the Master of the Beasts and a lion attacking an animal. On one side, we see a series of animal contests. I mentioned that hero versus two lions at the top. We also see pairs of animals, bulls, goats, and dogs. One bull is getting attacked by a lion. 
And we also have a man in a loincloth walking a dog. This leader fighting the lions has a hat that is unique in Egypt, but the same as the Uruk priest king, which we'll talk about. He has a beard, he has no shirt, and he has the same long kilt that we see in Mesopotamia. So in essence, this entire image is imported from the Near East and is different from its Egyptian counterparts. And on the other side of the knife handle, we see a battle where men in loincloths are fighting with knives, clubs, and pear-shaped maces. These rows of soldiers are similar to Urukart, a files of people. Some of these figures have shaved heads, including a guy pulling boats with raised prows, and some other guys drowning. Others of these soldiers have long hair, and some of them are in a differently shaped boat. So back in the day, like 100 years ago, this was often interpreted as a war between Mesopotamia and Egypt, with the assumption that Sumerians came the long way around via the Persian Gulf into the Red Sea, bringing their characteristic shaved heads, their boats, which they claim were Mesopotamian style, but aren't really. The truth is this is before artistic styles were standardized in Egypt. So even if two different groups of people are depicted differently in this art, that is not proof that these represent people from a different culture, as they will in later periods of Egyptian history when these depictions are more standardized. So all in all, we see small-scale trade between Egypt and Mesopotamia, no evidence of long-term sustained interaction, and no Egyptian stuff in Mesopotamia. The most parsimonious explanation imaginable is that a couple of people observed some Uruk culture in Syria, maybe at a site like Abu Kabira. They could have taken some notes on the sealing process. They could have observed some architecture and artistic motifs. Maybe they took a few seals home as mementos, which would explain that one guy with a boring tomb but this stamp seal. More likely, as Egyptian culture was expanding northeast into Palestine, it met the Uruk culture, which had already spread into Syria. Egyptians were probably impressed by certain aspects of Uruk elite identity, and they might have thought it would be cool to incorporate them. By this point, Egyptian society was already on its own track to complex statehood. In other words, the rise of the pharaonic state was not caused by Uruk contact. In fact, it went the other way around. Internal growth inside Egypt preceded contact, and once the Nakata culture had spread to incorporate most of what is now Egypt, they began looking for new ways to express their newfound elite identity. So, returning to the story of Enbarkar and the Lord of Arata, Enbarkar is the king of Unug. He prayed to the goddess Inanna to make the faraway kingdom of Arata provide him with labor and resources. Thereupon the splendor of Holian, the lady of the mountains, the wise, the goddess whose coal is for Ama Ushungal Ana, Inanna, the lady of all the lands, called to Enmerkar, the son of Utu. So Kol, of course, is eye makeup associated with sexual allure. Ama Ushungal Ana is another name for her lover, Dumuzid. Who is a separate person yes, from... Yes, who is a god, her lover god. Ah, separate see, from, from the yeah. two kings that are currently yep. yeah, 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 courting her with, with lapis lazuli temples. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool, cool. But in her defense, Dumuzi is in the underworld half the time. Ah, okay. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. It is a Persephone situation. So, no, I just want to be clear here. She she does invoke the name of her god lover in her response to her mortal mm-hmm. lover. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I don't think they're uh, meant to be contradictory. No, 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 yeah, it's just funny. Yeah. I mean, no wonder they had to include that part about the king being good at sex when, yeah, I guess. You know, yeah, exactly. When his competition is gods. So she says, come, Enmerkar, I shall offer you advice. Let my counsel be heeded. Choose from the troops, as a messenger, one who is eloquent of speech and endowed with endurance. Where and to whom shall he carry the important message of wise Inanna? Let Susa and the land of Anshan humbly salute Inanna like tiny mice. In the great mountain ranges, let the teeming multitudes grovel in the dust for her. Arata shall submit beneath the yoke to Unug. The people of Arata shall bring down the mountain stones from their mountains, and shall build the great shrine for you, and erect the great abode for you. May the people marvel admiringly, and may Utu witness it in joy. The people of Arata shall run around for you, like the mountain sheep in the fields of Dumuzid. Rise like the sun over my holy breast. You are the jewel of my throat. Praise be to you, Enmerkar, the son of Utu. So Enmerkar takes her advice. He picks a soldier who is, quote, eloquent of speech and endowed with endurance, end quote, and gives him the same directions that Inanna gave him. He also adds a demand for gold and a threat to destroy the city. I've always heard it's always good to twist God's words. Like, yeah, exactly. It always turns out well for you. It just got the word for more violence. <laughs> and material gain. Hold on, I've heard this one before. Messenger, speak to the Lord of Arata and say to him, lest I make the people fly off from that city like a wild dove from its tree. Lest I return them as if at a current market rate. Holy fucking shit. Right? Jesus This is the good king? <laughs> well, he's, a, he's the protagonist king. <laughs> this is the protagonist? <laughs> lest I return them as if at a current market rate. Lest I make it gather dust like an utterly destroyed city. Lest like a settlement cursed by Inki and utterly destroyed, I too utterly destroy Arata. Let Arata pack nuggets of gold and leather sacks, placing alongside it the Kugmea ore. Package up precious metals and load the packs on the donkeys of the mountains. Chant to him the holy 
be some. The incantation. Oh, I'm gonna need some help with that one. New de mood. <laughs> Why is there so many funny sex jokes in this episode? Oh, yeah, yeah. We're like nutty mud. I don't know. <laughs> that one's even worse. Nudie mud is my favorite type of wrestling. <laughs> it's just the two of us, the incantation and nudie mood. Yeah, exactly. It's just the two of us. <laughs> it's worth mentioning that nudie mood is a name of the god Enki. The god Inky has another name of duty. Yeah, because all like you know, all of the gods, if, you know, at some point we have a city god with this <laughs> other name, but he's kind of similar to your god. Yeah, Inky. yeah, yeah, they're the same guy yeah. oh, the whole time. Whoa, welcome to the empire. Yeah, exactly. Chant to him the holy song, the incantation of nudie mood. On that day when there is no snake, when there is no scorpion, when there is no hyena, when there is no lion, when there is neither dog nor wolf. When there is thus neither fear nor trembling, man has no rival. At such a time, may the lands of Shuber and Hamazi, the Minitongue, and Sumer, and Akkad, and the Martu land, the whole universe, the well-guarded people, may they all address and kneel together in a single language. For at that time, Enki, the lord of abundance and of steadfast decisions, the wise and knowing lord of the land, the experts of the gods, chosen for wisdom, the lord of Eridu, shall change the speech in their mouths, as many as he placed there. And so the speech of mankind is truly one. So the areas he lists are basically the four corners of the Sumerian world. There's Sumer and Akkad in the south, Shubur and Hamazi are in the north and the east, and Martu is in the west, home of the Amorites, or the Martu, or Mardu, as the Sumerians knew them. The goal here is basically a reverse Tower of Babel situation where many peoples of the world come to speak the same language, which in this case would be Sumerian, and that they would converge on Mesopotamia to build monuments to the Mesopotamian pantheon. So the messenger sets out, he journeyed by the starry night, and by day he traveled with Utu of heaven. Susa and the land of Anshan humbly saluted Inanna like tiny mice. In the great mountain ranges, the teeming multitudes groveled in the dust for her. He traversed five mountains, six mountains, seven mountains, he lifted his eyes as he approached Arata. He stepped joyfully into the courtyard of Arata. He made known the authority of his king. Openly, he spoke out the words in his heart. The messenger transmitted the message to the lord of Arata. Side note, if that's the original text, I like to imagine that five, six, seven mountains, like five mountains, audience unimpressed. Six <laughs> mountains, audience unimpressed. Seven mountains. Like, oh! <laughs> so the messenger says, Your father, my master, has sent me to you. The Lord of Unug, the Lord of Kulaba, has sent me to you. This is what he has said. My king, who from his birth has been fitted for the crown, the Lord of Unug, the Songkal snake living in Sumer, who pulverizes heads like flour, the stag of the tall mountains, endowed with princely antlers, wild cow, kid pawing the holy soapwort with its hoof, whom the good cow had given birth to in the heart of the mountains. Enmerkar, the son of Utu, has sent me to you. So he repeats Enmerkar's demand for precious metals and the threat to destroy Arata, and the Lord of Arata replies, It is I, the Lord suited to purification. I, whom the huge heavenly neckstock, the queen of heaven and earth, the goddess of the numerous May, holy Anana, has brought to Arata, the mountain of the shining May. I, whom she has let bar the entrance of the mountain, as if with a great door, how then shall Arata submit to Unug? Arata's submission to Unug is out of the question. So basically both kings claim Inanna's favor, but the messenger disagrees. The great queen of heaven who rides upon the awesome May, dwelling on the peaks of the bright mountains, adorning the dais of the bright mountains, my lord and master, who is her servant, has had them install her as the divine queen of Aana. Arata shall bow, O lord, in absolute submission. She has spoken to him thus in brick-built Kulaba. Thereupon, the Lord became depressed and deeply troubled. He had no answer. He was searching for an answer. He stared at his own feet, trying to find an answer. He found an answer and gave a cry. He bellowed the answer to the message like a bull to the messenger. I also love that they had to point out that he like looks like an idiot trying to find this. You know, like, he's like looking at his feet, just like kind of tearing up a little bit. It's like, no, no, they're asking me for stuff. I can't pleasure a god. <laughs> So basically, his answer is, hell no. The Lord of Arata replies, This great mountain range is a mesh tree grown high to the sky. Its roots form a net, and its branches are a snare. 
It may be a sparrow, but it has the talons of an Anzu bird or of an eagle. The barrier of Anan is perfectly made and is impenetrable. Those eagle talons make the blood of the enemy run from the bright mountain. With fewer than five or ten men, how can mobilizing Unu proceed against the Zubai mountain? Your king is heading in all haste against my military might. But I am equally eager for a contest. As the proverb goes, he who ignores a rival does not get to eat everything up. Like the bull which ignores the bull at its side. But he who acknowledges a contest can be the outright winner. Like the bull who acknowledges the bull at its side. Or does he reject me in this contest? Now, if in Merkar just makes straight for the benevolent protective spirit of the Mountain of Holy Powers, for Arata, which is like a bright crown of heaven, then I shall make my preeminence clear. So he agrees to trade. He says his kingdom is starving and it needs grain. He says Arata would easily win in a war against Unug, but he adds a caveat. We're Nana, the luxuriance of the grain pot who is the illuminator of the lands, the ornament of the settlements, who adorns the seven walls, who is the heroic lady fit for battle, who, as the heroine of the battleground, makes the troops dance the dance of Anana, where she actually to cast off Arata as if to a carrion-pursuing dog. Then that case I should submit to Inmarkar. He would indeed have made me know his preeminence. Like the city, I, in my smallness, would submit to him. In other words, if he receives proof that Anana has forsaken him, he promises to surrender. This is really sticking a lot, you know, like, all right, I tell you what, I'll give you all my shit, but only if my god girlfriend leaves me. <laughs> For you. <laughs> For you. <laughs> really, really betting, all my, really betting everything that's going well for me on one thing right now. So the messenger returns to Unug and repeats a message from the Lord of Arata. He repeated it word perfect to his master, the Lord of Kulaba. He even bellowed at him like a bull, and Enmerkar listened to him like an ox driver. The king had him sit at his right side. As he turned his left side to him, he said, Does Arata really understand the implications of his own stratagem? So Enmerkar takes a brief break for hydrological engineering. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a Sumerian myth. We got it. <laughs> what, I, like, what are we doing with the canals? Yeah. Let's pause some war. I'm going to go be an engineer. <laughs> exactly. After day had broken and Utu had risen, the sun god of the land lifted his head high. The king combined the Tigris with the Euphrates. He combined the Euphrates with the Tigris. So the next episode, we'll see the thrilling conclusion to the story of Enmerkar and the Lord of Arathel. <laughs>